Hello, this is Christopher Bandini, one of the hosts of the New Books and Psychoanalysis podcasts. And today we are very fortunate to have with us Dr. Gail Hornstein, who is the professor of psychology at Mount Holyoke College, Massachusetts. And she's here to speak about her book, uh, To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World, The Life of Frieda Fromm Reichman. Dr. Hornstein's research centers on the contemporary history and practices of psychology, psychiatry, and psychoanalysis. And our articles and opinion pieces have appeared in many scholarly and popular publications. In addition to her biography of Frieda Fromm Reichman, which questions standard assumptions about treatment through the story of a pioneering psychiatrist, she has also published Agnes's Jacket, a psychologist's search for the meanings of madness, which shows how the insights of people diagnosed with psychosis can challenge fundamental assumptions about madness and mental life. Her bibliography of first-person narratives of madness in English now is in its fifth edition with more than 1,000 titles, is used internationally by educators, clinicians, and peer organizations. She works closely with psychiatric survivor groups, is actively involved in training and research to expand the Hearing Voices Network in the United States, and speaks widely about mental health issues across the U.S., U.K., and Europe. And her website can be found at gailhornstein.com. So uh, thank you today, uh, Dr. Hornstein. Thanks for being with us. What led you to write about Dr. Reichman? Well, as I say in the beginning of the book, I didn't actually set out to write a biography of Frieda Fromm Reichman. I set out uh, to write about the missing chapter, as I saw it, uh, in the history of psychiatry and psychoanalysis. On the one hand, historians of psychiatry typically wrote about uh, developments in early 20th century psychiatry as if they only took place in state institutions and focused entirely on biological treatment methods. On the other hand, historians of psychoanalysis tended to write about the history of psychoanalysis as if it focused almost entirely, if not exclusively, on neurotic outpatients. And so here was the work of Frieda von Reichmann and, of course, other colleagues of hers like Sullivan, who focused on the psychotherapy of people with psychotic diagnoses. And so it was as if this entire body of work was being left out of history, whether it was history as written by historians of medicine or history as written by historians of psychoanalysis. And so I started out really to just remedy what I saw as, as an important lack in our understanding of that history. And I worked from a, the point of view of a historian of science, uh, in which I also have training, and um, I was going to write this as a, as a focus on the historical trends that would lead this kind of work to have been sort of written out of history. But as I more and more worked on this project, and as I began to interview colleagues and students of, uh, from Reichman's and other people who had been involved in psychotherapy with psychotic patients, I saw more and more that it was almost as if people could not today imagine that kind of work if they couldn't really focus on an individual person who had done it. And so more and more, as I interviewed uh, colleagues and students of Fromm Reichmann's, I came to realize that what would make this whole story much more vivid and believable and clear to people was to write it through the lens of Fromm Reichmann's own 
life and work, especially because one of her key beliefs about her work uh, was that her success with even very, very disturbed patients was made possible by diligence and the application of techniques which she thought would work for any psychiatrist, any psychoanalyst. And so rather than seeing her as some kind of miracle worker, she herself saw that what she was doing was working very hard using a somewhat different set of principles, say, from those of Freud. And I thought this was something that would uh, inspire other analysts to be able to imagine that they too could do that kind of work. Uh, yes, I, at the time, uh, it, it was quite quite pioneering to, uh, to to move away from Freud's technique, and this I think was was key to Sullivan and and, and Frieda's work was their ability to um, or their desire to try anything that worked. Yes, but I think that um, uh, part of what made uh, I mean, I, I, I don't um, write enough about uh, Sullivan's own intellectual development to talk about that so much, but what made it possible for Fromm Reichman to do this um, was that she really did not see herself as deviating from Freud's technique. Yes, of course, she was trained as a psychoanalyst. She was trained at the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute at its height of its prominence, where Carl Abraham was its uh, director, and many, many uh, analysts who went on to distinguished careers were trained there. Um, Yes, Frida had this kind of psychoanalytic training, but I argue in my book that the most formative experiences of her early life and the most important aspect of her training happened before that, when she worked with the neurologist Kurt Goldstein and treated, um, during World War I, um, German soldiers who had brain injuries from the uh, horrors of trench warfare. And these were completely healthy, vigorous young men who happened, because of the unpredictable trajectory of a piece of shrapnel or an exploding bomb, to develop a brain injury, um, which clearly in Goldstein's view, it had nothing to do with their psychology in particular. These were not people who were vulnerable in any way. They were strong and healthy, but now they had a piece of metal in their brains, and they had various symptoms, of course, as a result. And Goldstein's entire approach focused on the adaptability of the human organism, as he called it, the creativity that people used in meeting a challenge like having a brain injury. And Frida's approach learned during these horrible circumstances of war and in the field of neurology gave her, I argue in my book, a an absolute belief and commitment to the idea that anyone, no matter how distressed they were at the time the physician might meet them, um, could ultimately improve, just as these men who literally had things wrong with their brains from shrapnel, nevertheless often improved dramatically uh, using the very flexible approach that Goldstein had pioneered. And um, I think it's the combination of that as a formative experience in her training, and then her training at the Berlin Institute, which was not 
dogmatic and um, focused on Freud himself in the way that the Vienna Institute was in that time. In Berlin, uh, Karl Abraham thought of himself as a scientist, and he, as of course, so did Freud, but Abraham and, and all the uh, very distinguished uh, people that were training at that time, Melanie Klein and many others, um, were focused on how fundamental psychoanalysis Psychoanalytic principles like the unconscious and the childhood origin of symptoms and the transference and so on could be adapted to the circumstances of different types of patients. And that was the world that Frida was trained in. And so she never thought of herself as <clears throat> departing in any significant way from Freud, even though, of course, she did, but not, not in order to make a departure. In, she made those departures because she knew that if she adapted her technique to the circumstances and the characteristics of any particular patient, it would be more likely to work. Some time is spent on, on what she's like as a person and, uh, and her sense of dedication that, uh, that is almost uh, uh, hard to, uh, to imagine. Well, I don't know if it's so hard to imagine. Frida was the oldest of three daughters. She was a brilliant student from a very early age. She was clearly the favorite of both her parents, somewhat, of course, to the detriment of her two younger sisters who suffered from that. Um, And her parents had various difficulties in their marriage and in their own personal health and and life circumstances. Um, Her mother was very frustrated by the constraints of femininity of the time. Her mother was a very, very smart and shrewd woman who could have done many other things with her life had she not been living at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and Frida developed um, a sensitivity to the difficulties of her parents and an ability to explain people to one another so as to create greater empathy. Um, and, given her favored position, a very strong belief in her own efficacy in the world um, and in the benefits of hard work. Of course, since she was a woman in an extremely patriarchal, she lived in Prussia, an extremely patriarchal world. She was an Orthodox Jew in an anti-Semitic Germany, certainly we're talking here in the 1890s, certainly long before Hitler, but still, it was a very anti-Semitic world. Um, she had to have faith in herself because the world was not going to have faith in her. And um, I think her, her commitment to hard work and success as a result of hard work comes naturally from that environment and isn't actually surprising if you look at the circumstances in which she grew up. Uh before we move on to the United States, perhaps we should talk about her relationship uh, with Eric Fromm and how that came to be and where that led to. Well, that's a wonderful story. Um, Frida, a- after she finished her training at the Berlin Institute, um, and because she had uh, a close relationship and was also very influenced by um, the analyst uh, George Grodick, who lived uh, in Baden-Baden, uh, in, in the um, uh, southwest part of Germany. Um, she was very influenced by Grodek's ideas, um, which were very uh, innovative and pioneering and resonated with her own sense of 
of adventure and excitement in intellectual pursuits. Um, she wanted to try out these ideas. She also wanted to try out the some kind of a link between her psychoanalytic interests and her commitment to Orthodox Judaism. And so in that context, she bought a large house in Heidelberg, um, a house which still stands to this day, and there are pictures of it in my book. Um, and she opened what others, not Frida herself, uh, most prominently Gershom Sholem, the, the um, the prominent uh, Jewish uh, writer and intellectual of that period, he he dubbed Frida's house the Torapeuticum, <laughs> that is the therapeutic place based on the Jewish tradition of the Torah. And in this house, which is a very large house, she ha- basically had a, a small sanitarium. She had a number of patients living there. Uh, they kept kosher. They had Jewish intellectual life, they had discussions at dinner, it was like a small family-run sanitarium. Um, And in that context, and in the world of Heidelberg at the time, Heidelberg University is a very thriving place, and um, Heidelberg is very near Frankfurt, where the development of ideas that later became uh, known as the Frankfurt School, um, with Adorno and uh, a number of other leading intellectuals of that period. Um, in that world, Eric Fromm, who was then a student of sociology, who was studying at the University of Frankfurt with Adorno and Horkheimer and the other intellectuals of that group, um, Frida met Eric from in the heady world of intellectual life of, that all these people shared. Uh, he too was an Orthodox Jew, and um, they got to be friends. And then Eric got interested in psychoanalysis, uh, as did others in the Frankfurt School, and he wanted to pursue a training analysis. Um, he too became a student at the Berlin Institute. He commuted, he lived in Heidelberg with Frida and he commuted uh, to Berlin. Um, and uh, Frida was his, what we would now call his training analyst. This practice wasn't totally mm-hmm. formalized at that time, but it was starting to be formalized. Um, and as Frida later told people uh, when she reminisced about this, um, she, in a kind of a light-hearted way, she said, oh, well, you know, we fell in love, and so we stopped the analysis. Um, and they then had an affair, and then they got married. Frida was 11 years older than Eric. She was an accomplished uh, physician by that time. She owned this house with this you know, large number of people living in it that she was running, and she was treating them all individually. Um, and Eric was just part of that whole world. He lived there for a few years, and they had these fascinating conversations at dinner. Uh, they had friends like Martin Buber, uh, and they would discuss Jewish intellectual life. Um, Eric then developed tuberculosis. Uh, he went to Davos in Switzerland, where there was a uh, sanitarium where people with tuberculosis would often go. And through the next few years, this is in the early 1930s, um, he and Frida essentially separated during that period of time. Uh, there are many speculations about Eric Fromm. He had affairs with a number of other women, perhaps at the same time, perhaps Karen Horney. Um, but in any case, 
1933, when Hitler came to power, um, and over the next year or so, it became clear to Frida that she was in a very vulnerable position. Um, and she, on her own, with Eric off in the sanatorium, um, she made the decision to leave her entire life in Heidelberg and to um, quietly escape uh, to Switzerland and to France, um, and then eventually made her way to the United States. She and Eric, for the rest of their lives, remained very close friends. Uh, at a certain point in the United States, once they were both in the United States, he was in New York, and she was in Washington, um, they decided to get divorced. Uh, but they remained very, very close to one another for the, for the rest of Frida's life. Uh, Eric lived on for another 20 years or so after that. He was the executor of her, of her will, of her estate. Is that, that no, correct? He, w- he was asked to be, mm-hmm. and he refused. Mm-hmm. And, uh, why did she, do you know why she kept his name, uh, all this time, even after the divorce? Um, she kept a hyphenated name in which his name and her maiden name were joined together, as people often did, and um, uh, I, that was the name under which she had begun her career, and I think as many, many women then, and certainly even many women now, uh, choose to keep the name that they became known in their professional lives in, adult, in adulthood. Uh, there was uh, also something about a kind of a star-crossed quality of their relationship uh, that you describe in the book as well. Uh, if I pronounce the word uh, correctly, is it crevette? Uh, Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, when they met one another, Eric and Frida were both uh, Orthodox Jews. Frida was then in her 30s and Eric in his 20s. Um, they had been Orthodox all their lives. Um, in, in a very, you know, a fairly strict sense. They certainly kept kosher and they adhered to all rules of Orthodox uh, daily life. Um, psychoanalysis really, I think, in, in a way that Freud would be proud of, um, psychoanalysis made them question uh, at least the uh, the, the what one might argue from a psychoanalytic point of view are the compulsive aspects of religious ritual, doing things in a certain way every time, eating certain foods, issuing other foods. Um, and they both became somewhat disillusioned with uh, the practice of Orthodox Judaism, although I would say, and, and the title of my book clearly indicates that, uh, from Reichman, as well as Eric Fromm, uh, remained deeply, deeply committed for the entire rest of their lives to the uh, ethics of Judaism, to the basic fundamental spiritual principles of that uh, tradition. But in a dramatic moment that is uh, the stuff of legend, um, they decided they were going to stop their practice of uh, orthodox uh, uh, kosher ritual, and um, in a dramatic moment, they went during the holiday of Pesach, when you're not allowed to eat uh, bread of any kind, they went to a park, they didn't want to do this in the house, because there were so many Jews in the house, they thought they would be horrified, they went to a park, and they ate bread, and they felt, on one hand, very liberated by having done this outrageously 
uh, forbidden act. But on the other hand, you know, people who are very religious and who have been very religious and very uh, uh, orthodox in their practice into their adulthood, they also were superstitious. And they worried privately, unconsciously, then together they talked about this, that God was going to strike them down and some terrible thing was going to happen to them because they had violated these rules of orthodox practice. And... Um, of course, it's a matter of interpretation whether God punished them in any way, but um, neither one of them ever had children. And uh, on, on one theory, and Frida herself speculated about this, um, that is God's punishment for their um, misbehavior. Mm. Yeah. Uh, kind of moving on a little bit. Uh, well, uh, what led her to come to the United States? I, I, I suppose, like you alluded to at the, at the beginning, that it's almost um, impossible to separate uh, Frida from uh, from the development of Chestnut Lodge and her relationship with Chestnut Lodge. Well, that's true later, but that's certainly not what brought her to the United States. She, she came to the United States um, because in 1935, uh, because she had escaped from Germany which she did in a very uh, poignant and dramatic way, she so as not to arouse suspicion and to be arrested by the Nazis. She walked out of her 15-room house in Heidelberg with a tiny little suitcase as if she was going away for the weekend, told nobody, went to Strasbourg, which uh, was then in France, uh, just over the border, very short ride, um, and never came back. Uh, she worked a little bit in Strasbourg, but really the question for everybody in that period of time was, where can you get a visa uh, to be able to go to escape from Germany? Eric had by that time gone to New York, and he got her, he, he signed the affidavit in order to get into the United States. You had to have someone who would say that they were uh, financially responsible for you and attested to various things about your good character. And Eric, even though they were separated, they were still married, and Eric did that for her. And thus she was able to come to the United States. Um, she went to Chestnut Lodge, which was in Rockville, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C., um, because uh, the man who owned Chestnut Lodge, which was then a tiny, completely undistinguished little you could hardly even call it a hospital. It was like a, a country rest home uh, with a few patients. Uh, Dexter Bullard, who was the owner, um, had one other physician on his staff, and they saw all the patients, and they never got a vacation because there was no other staff. And when Dexter Bullard found out that this refugee psychoanalyst, Frieda Fromm Reichman, had just come to the United States and didn't have a job, he thought, great, I could hire her for two months for the summer, and then I and my other staff member can have a vacation for the first time in several years. And so Rita was just supposed to come to Chestnut Lodge for two months in the summer of 1935 to be the vacation replacement, and that was going to be it. But like every other person in her life for whom she worked, uh, she so impressed Dexter Billard that he changed his entire plan and eventually his entire hospital uh, on the basis of her ideas. But she certainly didn't 
know that was going to happen at the time when she first went there. Uh, and uh, she lived on the, on the grounds there. They, uh, they built her, her house for her there. They did. And although today that seems very quaint or unusual or even odd, um, in Europe, um, physicians typically lived on the grounds of the hospitals where they worked, especially if they were small hospitals. Um, I mean, even in the United States, uh, superintendents of state mental hospitals typically lived on the grounds. This was a, a, a frequent um, arrangement, and Frida had, in fact, already, during her previous life in Germany, lived on the grounds of several other hospitals where she worked. So this was a, a kind of a taken-for-granted part of her life. And since, as I say, she had had to walk out of her beautiful, beautifully furnished, middle-class, stone, lovely home in Heidelberg, and had very little money, as any refugee uh, ended up, um, and was no longer now married to Eric, um, it was uh, not surprising at all to her, and, and a very uh, kind of obvious way to solve the problem of where she would live, and also how she would do her work. And um, Dexter Bullard actually built her that house because during that first summer, when Frieda was working as a vacation replacement, she went out to the Menninger Clinic in Kansas to give a lecture. And um, the Menninger brothers were so excited about her being in the United States that they tried to hire her, which was wonderful for her since she needed a job. Um, and they had already gotten into the idea of promising these European refugee doctors a house on the grounds because it was fairly bizarre for these cultured European Jews to be living in Kansas, um, which just could not have been more different from the world they came from. So they offered to build her a house, and she shrewdly, she didn't want to live in Kansas. Nobody really did in that time. <laughs> yes. But these, you know, she was used to going to the opera and the symphony and speaking multiple languages and having, you know, lots of cultured Jewish friends as, as colleagues and, and companions, and uh, Kansas was certainly nothing like that. So she told Dexter Bullard that she was going to stay at Menninger because the Menningers were going to build her a house, and uh, he immediately said, no, 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 come back, we'll build you a house. And uh, they did, and like, you know, every small institution, they, the lodge had a staff of workers, they had carpenters, they had plumbers, and they built this house, which they always called the cottage, but really it was a pretty nice, fairly small, but very well-equipped house. Um, it was somewhat incongruous because it, uh, the, the style for it was taken from a style of a New England cottage. So there she was in Maryland, which in the 1930s was really still a very, very southern place. It had a statue of a Confederate soldier in the middle of town, and um, it was uh, pretty different from anything Frida had known. Um, so here she was living on the grounds of a mental hospital in a cottage that looked like it belonged on Cape Cod. So uh, it was unusual all around, but she loved it. She loved that house. She lived in it for the rest of her life. Uh, that Chestnut Lodge was not, uh, in, in a sense, unusual at the time. Like a lot of, um, there were the similar places up and down, but it seemed like Dexter Bullard at some point um, uh 
got behind psychoanalysis and the idea of having uh, a European analyst on staff was part of the cachet of the uh, of the place, kind of one of the selling points. Yes, I mean, that was true for other places as well. The Menningers tried to hire as many emigre analysts as they could find because they that added to the Menninger cachet as well. Um, Dexter Bullard is a fascinating uh, person, and I write a lot about him in the book because, um, fortunately, I had access to a lot of records and a lot of people who knew him. Um, and I'd say his decision to make Chestnut Lodge really the only psychoanalytic hospital in the world that specialized in the psychoanalytic treatment of psychotic patients. Um, his decision to do that was partly a good business plan. He had a small hospital, like many other small hospitals, but he gave it a distinct niche that <clears throat> made it possible for uh, him to sell it in a way that he might not otherwise have been able to do. Um, but he also had a very interesting background. He had grown up, his father had been the original owner of this hospital, and although it was, as I say, a bit more like a rest home when he was growing up, it had a lot of alcoholics who came there to dry out and other people who were, you know, in the parlance of the day called nervous, and they had various problems. Dexter Bullard had grown up there. That's where he lived in that hospital. He lived in that building for his whole childhood. And his playmates were patients. There there never was any kind of a big fence or a, a gates or anything around Chestnut Lodge. It just was there in the town, in, in the nice part of Rockville. So there were loads of neighbors around, as there still were when Frida arrived. And Dexter Bullock never thought of people who were in a mental hospital as being that different from other people he knew. They were people he played ball with, and they were, you know, they might have had their eccentricities, but they just weren't that strange to him. And so he partly turned the hospital into this psychoanalytic center as a, as a cachet, as a way to uh, make a distinctive business plan, but he also really believed that no matter how distressed someone appeared, they were basically just like everybody else, and if you could figure out how to reach them, they could get better. And that was his fundamental assumption to start with. And of course, Frida, then, with, with much greater training and sophistication and experience than Bullard had, she then, together with him and then with their many other colleagues who they hired as this, as this place became more and more successful, um, they then articulated in a series of papers a um, theoretical and therapeutic and clinical rationale for the practices they then developed. They really had the luxury of working uh, long-term and also uh, with, with great frequency with the, uh, with the patients there. A lot of the relationships lasted many years. It's uh, quite in contrast to the way things are today. Well, it's completely in contrast to the way things are today, but it, um, in a sense, it wasn't really in that much contrast to how things were then, because the people who came to the lodge uh, increasingly, during the time that Frida was there, so we're talking about the 20-year period between the mid-30s and the mid-50s, mm-hmm. um, the people who came to the lodge as patients were increasingly 
uh, distressed. They became, um, the hospital began to specialize in the treatment of schizophrenic patients. And so the people who came to the lodge, their alternative treatment at that time would have been to be in a state hospital for decades. So if they came to the lodge and they were there for a number of years, but then they were cured and they left and went on to live their lives, that was actually a shorter period of time than they probably would have been institutionalized otherwise. Because at the lodge, they got five days a week psychoanalytic treatment. At most state hospitals, even private hospitals, if the person could afford to pay for them, um, they would have gotten custodial care only. Or after the late 30s, they might have gotten shock treatment, they might have gotten lobotomies. Uh, Walter Freeman, who pioneered lobotomy in the United States, was uh, in Washington, D.C., right in that same area. And uh, it was on at least a number of occasions the case that a patient who was considered to be, you know, hopeless would be either referred to Walter Freeman for a lobotomy or referred to Frieda von Reichman for psychoanalytic treatment at Chestnut Lodge. Those were the kinds of people that certainly by the 40s, by the mid-40s, uh, late 40s, uh, the Lodge was specializing in. At what point did her reputation become, uh, uh, I guess, uh, bigger than life, one might say, that, that she had a waiting list and, uh, and it was, she was in demand? Where, when did that happen? I would say it happened throughout the 40s. Um, I mean, it started to happen right away. There, there were people, and I write about some of them in detail in my book, people who were, even in the mid to late 30s, referred to the lodge solely because Frida was there. Um, and she had many colleagues because of her relationships with analysts in Europe, who then all, in a short period of time, relocated to the U.S., um, many of them were in New York or in Boston, and others were in Washington or Baltimore. And um, Frida already, by the time she arrived at the lodge, had a reputation for being able to work with people who were particularly distressed. And uh, in that, you know, she had known Ferency in, uh, in, in Germany. She, Ferency was very close to Grodek. And she spent time together with the two of them. And Ferency was another analyst who was often sent the most disturbed patient, the, the person that nobody else could succeed with. So Frida already had that reputation before she came to the U.S. And then throughout the 40s, as she wrote a number of very high-profile papers. She almost always gave a talk at the American Psychoanalytic every year. She became the president of the Washington Baltimore Psychoanalytic Institute. Um, she had a lot of prominence. And then in the, not going to remember the exact date, but in the late 40s, uh, when she and Eric Fromm and Clara Thompson and others founded the White Institute, the William Melanson White Institute in New York, um, she had a number of uh, analysands in New York, and she would come up to New York for periods of time and do supervision with them. And so she had a, a, a strong reputation on, on the East Coast, both from uh, her prior connections in Europe and then all the supervisory uh, work she did in the U.S. Uh, the... Uh 
I, I suppose people know about, I, I never promised you a rose garden to some degree, but not everyone knows that uh, Frida was the, uh, the analyst in that book. And how did that, how did the story uh, develop uh, with, uh, with, I guess the patient was Joanne Greenberg? Yes, and Joanne Greenberg, I'm happy to say, uh, who's now 84 years old, is hmm. alive and well and living in Colorado, which she has for many years, and I just saw her a few months ago. Oh. We've stayed friends uh, since the time I wrote uh, this biography. Uh, Joanne Greenberg uh, came as a patient to the Lodge uh, in the late 40s um, when, as I argue in the book, Rita von Reichman was as expert a therapist as she was ever going to be. She was at the absolute peak of her effectiveness. Um, Joanne Greenberg was 16 years old. Uh, she was a very, very disturbed young woman, and she, in fact, had had to wait for several years before she could be admitted to the lodge because she was too young, and there was no such thing in that time in the 40s as an adolescent treatment unit, so she had to wait until she was old enough to be allowed into the log. Um, and there have been, uh, over the years, many debates about, you know, was Joanne Greenberg properly diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and this is a huge issue that we could discuss, and which I discuss in, in detail in my book. Um, but in any case, she came to the log in the late 40s. She was diagnosed as schizophrenic. She was very, very distressed. She was an inpatient for four years, and then she was an outpatient for a couple of more years. And um, she and Frida had one of the great therapeutic alliances in the history of psychoanalysis. Um, and they worked extremely well together. Uh, Joanne was entirely cured, uh, it, no matter how you want to define her diagnosis and her problems in the first place. Um, and she then went on to university, and uh, she got married to a wonderful man to whom she is still married 60 years later. Oh. Uh, she then um, uh, moved to Colorado. They, the two of them moved to Colorado. She had two children, um, and she became a writer. And she published a novel, uh, which was uh, well-reviewed. Um, and then for a complex set of reasons in Joanne Greenberg's own life, uh, which I talk about in the book, she decided to write a fictionalized version of her treatment uh, with Frida. Uh, this was, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, was published in 1964. Uh, Frida had died in 1957, so Frida was then dead for, four, uh, for seven years. Um, and Greenberg wrote a novel. It's extremely close to her real experiences. So the doctor in the book is called Dr. Fried. That's Frieda from Reichman. That's the level of disguise in the book. Um, but it's a remarkable book in many, many respects. In fact, I still teach it to uh, my undergraduate students at Mount Holyoke. I'm going to teach it next month. Um, the book presents a psychoanalytic psychotherapy with a very, very distressed person um, from the point of view of the patient. And it is extremely well written and compelling as a piece of writing. What was interesting about it when it was published, even though it was published as a novel, it says fiction on the book, uh, 
order to protect her family, Joanne Greenberg took a pseudonym. Now, again, the level of disguise here in the pseudonym was not great. Joanne Greenberg took the pseudonym Hannah Green. Um, but she had the pseudonym. The book was published as fiction. Her publisher treated it as fiction. The entire thing was written about as a, as a novel. But readers, from the very beginning, and this book has now been continuously in print for 50 years, it just celebrated its 50th uh, year in print in 2014. Um, readers somehow guessed that this was a true story. And one of the great joys I had in doing the research for my from Reichman biography is that I interviewed Joanne Greenberg and I got to be friends with her and she gave me permission to read all the letters that readers wrote to her after Rose Garden was published. It's incredible. Uh, Joanne, Joanne Greenberg's papers, she, she then went on to become a very uh, well-known novelist. She's written 15 other novels and short stories and many other things. And because of that, her papers are collected uh, in an archive of contemporary writers at Boston University. And all the letters that people wrote to her after Rose Garden was published are part of this archive, and she gave me permission to read them. And there are just dozens and dozens of letters from people of every imaginable sort um, writing to her saying, I know this book says it's fiction on the outside, but I know it's real. Uh, either because I'm a mental patient myself, or because I know somebody who has suffered, or just because I can tell. Um, and this actually became a complicated issue for me to deal with in writing the biography, because the Dr. Freed that seen I Never Promised You a Rose Garden is a person extremely close to the real Frieda Fromm Reichman, but it's an idealized portrait written by a patient whose entire life was saved thanks to Frida's work with her. Uh, and it's a novel. So I was trying, when I began my book, to write a biography about a person who already existed in many people's minds as a fictional character. So it was a big challenge, but um, I, as I say, I, I know Joanne Greenberg, and I spent a lot of time talking to her about Frida and many other things, and uh, there is no question in my mind that although, of course, we can always debate about the diagnosis of any particular patient, you know, in the 1940s or now, um, she was so disturbed as a young person, she could not go to school, she could not, in any remote sense, live a normal life. And her, her whole psychology was dramatically changed for the better by the treatment that she experienced with Frida. And Frida herself was very, very proud of this treatment. She wrote uh, a paper about it, she gave lectures about it uh, afterwards, and in fact, before Greenberg wrote the novel, which, as I say, was done seven years after Frieda's death, while Frieda was still alive, but the treatment was successfully completed, Frieda asked Joanne if she wanted to collaborate on what would have been an extremely innovative book in which 
Frieda was going to write about the treatment from her point of view as the therapist. Joanne was going to write about it from her point of view as the patient. And Joanne's mother was going to write about it from her point of view as the mother of the patient. Mm. That book was never created, but the part that Joanne wrote in the draft was the beginning of what became later, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Uh, there was a sense uh, that uh, that Joanne Greenberg was different than some of the other patients there, and that uh, and that uh, Frieda knew that, and, and that that was part of their relationship, and kind of this uh, kind of taking off in a way, or kind of uh, it started with the sense that she was quite different. She had a motivated family, and uh, and was younger. There were there were things that were really going for her. The main thing that was going for her, I think, is that she was sixteen years old, right. <laughs> and so you know whatever her degree of impairment. She was hallucinating. She was very, very distressed. She cut her arms with broken tin cans and shoved lighted cigarettes into the wounds. I mean, she really was in a very, very bad state. But she was 16 years old. She hadn't been like that for decades, as many other patients had. And she hadn't had a lot of previous failed treatments, which I think is an, always an important thing to consider uh, in talking about somebody with a psychotic diagnosis because people become hopeless about themselves after they've been through many different treatments, none of which seem to have worked. Yeah. Uh, after Frida's death, the book uh, does continue and and, uh, and speaks about the later years at Chestnut Lodge, which were not all, uh, all favorable. Well, it's complicated to sustain a a very iconoclastic and uh, innovative and experimental philosophy over a long period of time. Uh, I think that's true of many different kinds of institutions, educational institutions, therapeutic institutions. Uh, there are many colleges that were founded on uh, innovative ideas, and once the founder dies, it's hard for the next generation to sustain that same excitement. I think that's partly what happened at the Lodge, but I think it's also that um, changes in psychiatry that were occurring, especially uh, the development of medication uh, starting in the 60s, um, in the late 50s, had a huge effect on psychiatry in general, and it became harder and harder for the Lodge to maintain a an approach that was being less and less favored in psychiatry as a whole. I mean, it was one thing for Chestnut Lodge to have a psychoanalytic approach to psychotic patients in the 1940s, even though, of course, most psychoanalysts didn't treat psychotic patients. Still, psychoanalysis was a dominant point of view in psychiatry. As psychoanalysis became less and less a dominant point of view in psychiatry, the fact that the Lodge was trying to use it to treat psychotic patients became, I think, more problematic in a cultural sense, not so much that they were doing anything less effective than they ever had. But once Frieda was dead, after 1957, um, it became harder to sustain the symbolic effectiveness, I think, of the Lodge. Uh, Harold Searles was there uh, when Frieda was there, and then uh, an interesting uh, fact in the book, uh, took over her bedroom as, as his office? 
Uh, yes, eventually her, her house, her cottage was turned into an office because really nobody else could live there. It was hers. It was so imbued with her, so they turned it into offices. Um, he wasn't, of course, in a room that was a bedroom. He was in a room that had formerly been her bedroom. Right, yes. <laughs> but, of course, this is rich with analytic possibilities. And um, Frida and Searles had a complicated relationship. He was her student. Uh, and uh, he learned an enormous amount from her, which he openly acknowledges. He also was very competitive with her, um, and I would argue he was even more competitive with her after her death. Uh, there was uh, something in the, uh, that I remember in the book about uh, the sense that his patients were there a long time and uh, about maybe a, uh, an implication that he kept patients longer than they needed to be there or um, some, something along those lines? Well, I prefer to think about it in this way, which... Uh, I can't remember who said this to me in an interview, but uh, I think a colleague of theirs who I think I think captured uh, the, the the difference between Frida and Searle. Frida was famous for being able to locate the health that was buried in even the sickest patient, even someone who appeared to be completely psychotic. She was convinced, and again, this was, came from her original work in the 19-teens in the First World War with Kurt Goldstein, that there was always a buried health that was there somehow, and that was her, her job was to connect with that, and that was the, the basis of her therapeutic alliance. And colleagues said about Searles that he more identified with the sickest parts of people. And he was personally more connected emotionally to those parts. And although, of course, uh, he was a deeply dedicated analyst and was deeply committed to trying to help his patients, I think that difference between them helps to explain some of the different outcomes that they had. Frida certainly also saw people for long periods of time, but not as long as Searles did. Uh, as I was telling people that I was going to be interviewing you, uh, the question that came up uh, very often was, what happened to Chestnut Lodge and what happened to, uh, to Frida's cottage? Well, Chestnut Lodge continued on um, until uh, the 1990s um, in different forms. Dexter Bullard eventually died. His son, Rusty Bullard, Dexter Bullard Jr., um, took over as superintendent. Um, and uh, there were many, many very um, innovative and um, effective young analysts who came there to work uh, in that later period. Uh, one of the best known is Anne Silver. Um, and uh, there was still a commitment throughout the 80s, uh, even though this work was still certainly not in the mainstream anymore. Um, to, to using psychoanalytic approaches with very seriously distressed people. Um, I was very fortunate when I was doing the research for my book in the 1990s um, that someone who had been Dexter Bullard's uh, 
uh, administrative assistant for many decades and knew every piece of paper in the entire place, um, had just retired and was creating an archive. And that's how it was possible for me to write my book, was that I, I got the benefit of being able to use all these materials. And during the period that I was writing the book, the lodge was still alive and well, and I went and spent long periods of time there and uh, spent many hours in buildings reading all these records that had been kept. I mean, amazing records, verbatim transcriptions of every staff meeting for decades. <laughs> uh, I had the amazing uh, resource to work with, probably uniquely in for a biography of a psychoanalyst, I had tape recordings of Frida doing psychotherapy with some of her patients. It's just amazing. And all these materials were still there, and the lodge was still thriving. Eventually, what happened is that um, you know it was a family business, and when family members stop being able to run a family business, it often runs into trouble. And that's what happened when Musty Bullard died, and um, others were going to take over the hospital, but for some complicated set of political and financial reasons, that didn't work, and it ended up being sold. Um, fortunately, just after I finished my research. Yeah. So it's a, it's no longer standing in any in any form, is it? I, you know, I haven't been there in a few years, but. Uh, when I was last there for an ISPS meeting uh, in that area, I don't know, I'd say certainly within the last 10 years, um, parts of it were still there, including Frida's Cottage, but uh, there had been a fire and the place had been sold and it really didn't continue to exist. It certainly was closed as a hospital and didn't continue to exist. I don't know whether the exact status of the building at this point. So we're coming to the end of our analytic hour here, so uh, I just uh, wanted to uh, give you a chance to bring us up to date on some of the things you've written since then. Well, my next book, Agnes's Jacket, um, in many ways was inspired by a particular part of Frieda from Reichman's work. She, I think, was one of the very first <clears throat> psychiatrists who valued and taught narratives of madness written by patients. She was very interested in these kinds of documents. Of course, Rose Garden became one such document, but even in Frieda's life, during her lifetime, she was very interested in these kinds of uh, materials, and she often used them in her teaching at the White Institute and other analytic institutes. And I myself had, had long been uh, interested in these first-person narratives of madness, and I have collected them, and I now have them in a bibliography, uh, which, as you mentioned, has a thousand titles on it, and those are just the ones in English and just the ones published as books. Uh, they start in the 15th century and go up till now. Um, and I agreed very strongly and was very influenced by Frieda's valuing of these materials. And Agnes's Jacket is a book about what we can learn about psychotic experiences uh, and all other kinds of distressed experiences from people's first-hand uh, accounts. 
and that's what I've focused on for a long period of time, and I do a lot of work with the Hearing Voices Network, which uh, is an international collaboration of patients and therapists and family members and others who are committed to reframing our understanding of experiences like hearing voices from the point of view of people who hear them and how they understand them themselves. Um, I'm currently just finishing a new book called uh, Our Minds and Each Other, which uh, focuses on the lessons that I've learned about how the mind works from people who've had very seriously distressing experiences of having their minds not work. Um, and I've learned an enormous amount uh, from people who hear voices, from people like Joanne Greenberg, from people who I've interviewed or whose accounts I've read. And I think there's a lot in what they've experienced that can help all the rest of us who may never have experienced a very distressing experience like psychosis, but who don't necessarily think about our own minds in the most helpful ways. And so I, I told someone the other day, my new book is going to be about um, mental health for people who don't have mental health problems. Yeah, I'll be looking forward to it. Maybe uh, you can come back on at that point. We can talk about it. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, th thank you, Dr. Hornstein. Uh, this has been uh, Christopher Bandini. We've been talking to Dr. Gail Hornstein about her book, To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World, The Life of Frida Fromm Reichman. Uh, thanks again, and uh, until next time.